You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the House of Literature. My name is Andreas, and I'm the artistic director at the House, and I'm really happy to see you all here today and really excited to introduce tonight's speaker. Since 2009, we have hosted this program, The Saladin Days, at the House of Literature, inviting writers and scholars to discuss and reflect on the relationship between past and present, Europe and the Middle East, with the historical, historical character Saladin, at the Crusades and Jerusalem as a point of departure. We have focused on many different areas and geographies, so to say, but always taking the relationship between Europe and the Middle East as a starting point. But today, I'm excited and proud that we will look at this, all of this from a completely different angle than we are used to. Uh, Peter Francopan is professor of global history at Oxford University, and in his capturing achievement of a book, we are invited to rethink and reimagine the dominant narratives of history and to see everything from a new angle. The center of this world history is not Europe or Jerusalem. Its origins are not in Greek antiquity or in Roman Empire, but somewhere between the Black Sea and the Himalaya, in one of the cities that form a pearl row on what we know as the Silk Roads. It is a new history of the world, nothing less. And we are really honored and happy to have Peter Francopan here today to give us this year's Saladin lecture with the title, The Crusades Seen from Asia. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. God kväll. Jag är ganska glad att vara här. Men jag är smart att snacka svensk, men jag snackar inte norsk. Så tyvärr jag ska tala i engelsk. But thank you very much, Literaturhuset, for inviting me here today. I was just saying that if you told me a few years ago that I'd be invited to Oslo to come and give such a prestigious talk to so many people, um, I wouldn't have believed you. So thank you very much. It's a wonderful thing sometimes that in this changing and difficult, complex world that we see around us, how important it is that we as a species remember what we can do with our, well, in my case, my, my fingers, a laptop and a library. Uh, but how many works of culture I spent the day walking around your beautiful city uh, with my wife. I don't know Oslo terribly well, but admiring the art, the public architecture, uh, the statues that we see everywhere. Um, what a wonderful planet we live in when we concentrate. So uh, that makes it difficult to come and talk to you about Saladin this evening because, of course, the name of Saladin um, is, involves specifically the Crusades. I'm going, to, I'm going to stand and walk because I don't like to stand behind the, the, the counter. Uh, Saladin, uh, everybody knows his name. I think it's probably fair to say he is the second most famous Muslim in history after the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, he's probably, there are, I'm sure there are some colleagues of mine in the audience tonight, I hope there are some colleagues of mine in the audience, medieval scholars, who will be able to tell you the names of other uh, generals from the periods of the Crusades. Names like Zengi, the Atabeg of, of, um, of Mosul, and then the conqueror of Edessa, or Nuri ad-Din. But Saladin stands far above any other name we know, not just from the Middle Ages, but I think over uh, the time since Prophet Muhammad, the most famous Muslim of all, um, was alive in the 7th century. And that for me is very interesting as a historian. It's very interesting to me how we choose and prioritize and cherry pick some events, some people from the past, and not others. So tonight I'm going to talk a bit about um, the Crusade, Corsigena, uh, set from Asia, but also I'm going to talk a bit about violence, I'm going to talk about perspectives, I'm going to talk about the past, and I'm going to talk about the present, and to try to see Saladin in a different way, try and see some of those reasons why this wonderful series was set up. Those of you all, I'm sure, have been to these talks before, know that one of the driving factors was to try to explain the past, or the Christian past of Europe, also the pagan past of Europe, also the Jewish past of Europe, the, the Islamic past of Europe, and also other parts of the world, so that we understand things better. And it's a joy 
uh, coming to the lecture. The first ever big lecture I gave at Harvard, my wife was in the audience, uh, the dean of the humanities was in the audience, the, my, the professor in charge of history was in the audience, and there was one other professor from Harvard that was the most scared I've ever been. Um, so I love seeing lots of people, uh, because it means if there are these distinguished people amongst you, all of you in your different ways, it's, it's a wonderful thing to come and talk, because it means you want to listen. So I hope I will live up to my billing, and for you for giving up your evening where you could be at home, um, in, uh, safe from the snow. So here, here is, uh, let's, see, let's see if this if is going to work. Here we are. Uh, crusades are wonderful things. If you go on a, on a crusade to reform the, the health service or politics, you're trying to make things better. So Blair's crusade, as he called it, it's to have a society free from prejudice. Crusades are, are, are act still, we use this word, in terms of a noble cause of trying to make things better, to fight against cancer. You know, crusade, we use this word as a highly positive and important one. Uh, John Major, and his, we miss him as well. Um, Diana, we miss her also, her landmine crusade. Um, and this one's my favorite one. This is a new guy, a grammar crusader. <laughs> this is it. We, we live on a wonderful planet that God made us, or whatever, whoever made us, Darwin, God, whatever you think, we are all made different. Uh, this man, Brian Henderson, he is, that's quite a good thing to have on a tombstone one day, when you die, Grammar Vigilante. Um, Peter the Great, Grammar Vigilante. Uh, so he goes onto Wikipedia every day, and the grammar he's correcting is to say, uh, anybody who says comprised of, he changes it to comprised with. Right? For him, that matters. But because the crusade, it's about a personal journey as well as the collective. You can have a personal crusade. All of these things are one person, one man, one woman trying to lead, trying to, trying to make the world a better place. And I'm not putting these here to laugh at them. I'm not, you know, this is important. People, you know, this takes Brian time. Uh, Diana and the landmine crusade, this was important. This was to stop uh, the terrible suffering that I'm sure many of you will have seen in places like Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Bosnia, etc., etc. You know, these, are, these are good things. Crusades are positive. Just I'm talking about the language. Here in uh, 92, uh, I respect my invitation, my hospitality, if you're a Norwegian. So I'm not going to tell you which kind of violent and sexually explicit lyrics Tipper Gore uh, was complaining about, but crusades are, are good things in everything we, we see about the world around us. We don't connect, in the same way we don't connect our flags, we don't connect this word with this movement that happened a thousand years ago. But the crusades are immensely popular uh, for um, all over the world. Even, uh, and nobody has ever heard of him anymore, uh, Chris... <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's true, nobody has, right? <laughs> Luckily, I was, I was told it's going to be a podcast. So no one can see who we're, no one will be able to know who we're talking about. Um, but here, when I was growing up, it was, the, it was the Cape Crusader. And look, because I can do this interactively, pow! Uh, the Batman was the Crusader par excellence. He was constantly trying to deal with evil with bad people, and Batman's changed over the years. He went from being a bit more svelte and a bit more moody like uh, George Clooney. Uh, this is Christian Bale. He's got now much better muscles. He's been working out in the meantime. And Ben Affleck, who, if I want to be polite, I think he's been eating a lot. <laughs> but the Cape Crusader is, is that's what boys grow up with. The, 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 ch the, the, the childhood of, of seeing good against evil. This is the world that we live in. So it's not surprising that we we are setting up to not understand other cultures, right? I mean, I write a lot about that in my Silk Roads book. It, it, it all starts with education. But, you know, we have crusader holidays and bus trips and so on. You know, I'm out of respect for Oslo, and I mean this absolutely deadly seriously. You know, this is a problem also in Norway, your terrible slaughter that happened. And I'll tell you, I'm not going to either recognize with an image or by naming who that is, but the story of the Knights Templar, of this reconceptualizing of a Middle Ages as something valiant and noble. This has a proper, real life, how we use the past and understand it in our modern days. So uh, to lighten the tone a little bit is the Jazz Crusaders. Uh-huh, I'm probably not too scared of them. And I'm certainly not scared of these guys. <laughs> um, the, the Crusades... And the Crusaders, it's in the eye of the beholder, but you know, it's, it's a positive sign. And of course, because I'm an academic and my colleague who, who's a medieval historian will know that all of us, I don't just want to say 
would like to be Indiana Jones. I think we all think that we actually are in some way, shape or form. But anyway, these crusades are, are very important in terms of how we, how we do things, how we see the world around us. And that, that story of why history matters seems to me extremely important. And it's particularly important history at a time of change, understanding why are we changing. Uh, the natural instinct, a bit like with a car crash or a plane crash, is to think it's the final moment where things went wrong. And it's never like that. I have a friend, we have a friend who's a pilot and tells us about its Swiss cheese theory. Almost all plane crashes are human error, always. Uh, and with Swiss cheese, we all know the Swiss cheese, right? You have Swiss cheese in Norway? They're very expensive, your cheeses, by the way. Yeah? Uh, there, are, there are holes everywhere, but no holes in Swiss cheese go the whole way through. And with, with pilots, how you're trained is that there are always seven things that go wrong. And you, you recognize from the first process where that, where, that, where that begins, right? It's a long story, but it's worth it, okay? So when you wake up a little bit later because your alarm clock doesn't go up, or you, were out, you had a little one glass too many, or you, know, you, you forget your keys in your car, you, you know that something's already going wrong. So by the time you're in the cockpit and you've had to rush things, you know that you're on level three, four, and, and you're trained how to address these things. The same way when things go wrong in the world around us, you know, it is not Trump that is causing the problems of today. Trump may well be part of that, but it's about a story that has much deeper roots. And all of us instinctively only want to look at the moment of impact because that's where the drama is. That's where the excitement, that's where the adrenaline, that's where the fear is too. But history and what, what my job and my colleague's job, why we do this kinds of thing, is to try to understand where these roots all come from. And there are dangers of not understanding history, particularly at a time of great change. And like I said in my book, I try and talk about what's happening in Russia, China, Iran, Turkey, these countries which seem to me much, much more important in today's world than whatever we might be thinking about Brexit or votes in Italy, profound change on a scale that I don't think has been seen for the last 400 years, maybe, maybe more. Uh, but uh, that's important because at a time of change, uh, not understanding how we see the world, these ideas about crusades, I'll show you why it's important. Ah, yes. But first, this is Theresa May. She doesn't give many interviews, but she decided to speak to Vogue for reasons that her, her advisors must have thought were a good idea. And she said, uh, she was asked what she likes to read. She says she doesn't read much history and tries not to picture how things will be in advance. <laughs> I, I, as luck would have it, I'm not here to talk about politics, and I'm, my job is absolutely not to be uh, politically one-sided or other, but as a historian, this strikes me as being um, interesting. You know, I'm <laughs> it strikes me as being interesting, I could say revealing, but I think interesting. And, and I, have, you know, I have lots of friends of, of, of mine who are involved in, in politics, in policymaking, and I don't envy them. It's, very, it's one thing to be uh, a clever clogs and to explain things. It's something different to be making decisions and to try to work out what's right, and then also not just work out what's right, but work out how you sell that to your electorate, or in Theresa May's case, to her cabinet and to her colleagues and to people who should be on the same side as her. But I suppose what this all leads into is how important it is to actually understand history and understand the meaning of words and understand that world that we live in. So uh, uh, five days after 9-11, um, George Bush had to give a statement about what was going to happen next. The American country, as your American state, as you know, were, was in deep shock, as were many people, not just in Europe, but all over the Middle East, all over the world, by what had happened. Uh, and he, George Bush is exactly right. This is a new kind, well, he didn't have to say it twice, this is a new kind of evil. And we understand, and the American people are beginning to understand, this crusade, this war on terrorism, is going to take a while. And uh, Bush was criticized very heavily for using this word. Uh, he was torn apart in the press for uh, misappropriating the past, for giving this, uh, talking about these ideas about uh, good against evil. And yet, it seems to me that I'm not a supporter of George Bush, nor am I anti. I keep going to say I'm neutral uh, because I'm on public display here. Uh, but um, it seems to me that's fair in many ways. If that is a crusade against evil, when you're dealing with people who want to kill you, um, then perhaps one can find some... Uh, explanations and some parallels from the past that are more useful. In fact, people waded into this because there is a half of the press, or a part of the press, which believes that crusades are inherently and intrinsically evil and dangerous. But just to balance this up, uh, this is what Osama bin Laden said. This war is fundamentally religious, is one of his video releases. Uh, the people of the East are Muslims. Yes, fair, okay, well, some of them are. In fact, he forgets, we forget, that Christianity reached China six centuries before it reached Norway. 
right? We forget that there were huge communities of Jews living in Bamiyan in central Afghanistan, uh, connecting with other Jewish communities right the way across the spine of Asia, multiple different Zoroastrian communities uh, and so on. So it's not all of the people of the Eastern Muslims. Anyway, they sympathize with the Muslims against the people of the West who are the Crusaders, right? This is the language that bin Laden used, not just in this tape, uh, but in every single audio, every single videotape that was released after 9-11 that bin Laden ever did, I think there were about 30, 35, every single one mentions the Crusades. And for me, that is, as a historian like Theresa May's comment in Vogue, is extremely interesting because I cannot conceive of a world where I would fly or be involved in a plot to, to destroy, kill civilians because um, Harold Hordrather lost at Stamford Bridge rather than one. These are events that happened eight, nine hundred years ago, and yet they are fresh in the minds of Al-Qaeda, of bin Laden, and many more besides. Uh, these events that took, took place a long time ago shows how important and deadly serious history is. And this isn't just a, uh, a bin Laden story, uh, new threats we have to deal with now mercifully dispersed uh, from places like Mosul and Raqqa, but clearly, uh, like cancer cells, dispersed and will reform at some point, some, some, some point, I'm afraid. I, I edited this picture on the airplane yesterday, which is, by the way, never a good idea, because people got very edgy uh, sitting, sitting next to me. So I, slam, I slammed the lid closed as quickly as I could. Um, uh, but this is Dabiq, this is the glossy in-house magazine. Uh, people like me spend my time trying to work out who is writing this English text. What level of education do they have? Uh, what, what knowledge do they have? Where are they getting their information from? But this is, this is about the Crusades. It's on the front cover of, uh, of the uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda um, uh, prospectus. This is a recruitment aid and a way of explaining to people that uh, the, this is what, in their eyes, they're up against. We are all crusaders. We are all fair targets under any circumstances. Uh, Al-Zarqawi uh, talks about Dabiq. This is, this is an important um, uh, location, uh, which is mentioned in the, one of the very few physical locations mentioned in the Quran, but in the context of this is the moment at which um, there will be, so the, the apocalypse arrives, and therefore you better have a long beard and not be drinking any alcohol. Um, here, this gives you a clue. Our grammar crusader would be very useful here to see that someone can't spell there, right? This is taught to anybody under the age of 10 in England as a grammatical error. In the land of the warrior crusader, that, that could be any of us. Uh, there's nothing known as innocent and civilian and no guarding of their blood. We're all fair game. Crusades, for us, are good things. You go on a crusade to fix politics, to get rid of obscene lyrics in rap, uh, to beat cancer, to stop landmines, to end inequality. And yet these guys seem to see the Crusades in a very different way. Not good, I think it's fair to say. Uh, when uh, small children were blown apart by a young man in Manchester, ISIS claimed responsibility, and I'm not going to read this out either, um, but, but the midst of the gathering of the Crusaders, 10, 11, 12-year-old girls, right? It's a sign of how this conceptualization of history works. And uh, I'll explain why I think that's, uh, crazy as I come, as I get through the lecture. So this binary black and white is not just that we see the world as them and us, it's these words are being used in totally different ways. That's why these lectures are so unbelievably important, to try to unscramble some of these uh, views of the past and to try to make sense of them all. Um, this Taliban jihad poetry, I didn't do this on the plane, uh, but I think everyone break, hacks my emails anyway. Uh, but again, we have this is, this is stuff that's recited in Pashto in, in, by the Taliban today, new poetry. It's a very interesting, it's a very interesting phenomenon that in um, the highest form of, uh, of intellectual performance and credibility, still in the Arab-speaking world, or large parts of the Arab-speaking world, it's hard to generalize, and, and in Central Asia too, is oral poetry. One reason why bin Laden was so well regarded was because he was, a, he was thought to be a, a wonderful poet. Uh, the man, well, that's just how it is, the men who compose and recite poetry goes back in a long tradition in terms of the very early ages of, uh, of Islam, the recitation of the Quran, uh, the way in which uh, in entertainment was enjoyed in the caliphal court in Baghdad and Damascus and Samarra uh, from the 700s onwards. That idea that this is how you show that you're clever, this is how you show you're sophisticated. But in the, so in the Taliban jihadi poetry, uh, which has a huge corpus of material, 
um, you find, again, references here, even in Central Asia and Afghanistan, to the Crusade and the Crusaders. And we're talking about thousands, not just thousand years now, we're talking about thousands of miles away. Um, you know, Kabul, or wherever this is, it's not from Kabul, but um, from, uh, from Taliban-controlled territory. This is a long way, no impact at all of, um, of, of uh, these, these crusading events from the 11th century onwards. So, you know, we have the same parallels of how we use this word jihad, which has different conceptions, different meanings uh, in the Muslim world. But you see the kind of world we're living in, where um, we, are, we are seeing more and more division more and more unwillingness to try to understand what we're talking about. And this is, we should all be scared of this um, because nothing ever ends well with flag-waving, chest-beating, and the pronunciation that you are correct. And I don't know, I was in San Francisco until the weekend uh, at Stanford, uh, but the, when, I, when I was there, I saw, which I, I don't know if it was shown on the Norwegian TV, um, but the six-year-old girl in Turkey meeting President Erdogan last week who was obviously terrified to meet a man who was powerful and, and obviously been told by her parents, do not, do not mess it up. Um, he said to her, you shouldn't be scared. And she started crying. And he said, if anything ever happens to you and you martyr and you'll die in the name of Islam, you'll, 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 be, a, you'll be a hero and go to paradise. And then um, she cried properly. Um, uh, uh, you know, this, this, this idea that um, we live in a world that is black and white is... is important. And that's best understood, curiously, not by our own politicians. Is anybody here, by the way, an MP? You see, what a terrible shame that they're so busy. Um, is anybody here under the age of 18? That's also such a terrible shame. I, I'm sorry to embarrass you. you know, it's awful. I mean, it's terrible because this is a world that our children and our grandchildren, our nephews and nieces, are not just will inherit, but they're already inheriting. So, uh, but th this is best understood, this division, not by our policymakers, but by precisely by Dabiq and by these uh, hardline um, fundamentalist terrorists, certainly in the Middle East, also increasingly in, in places like the United States, where uh, Dabiq talks specifically in terms of getting rid of any gray area. You are either for us or you're against us. And I suspect most of you, uh, I'm not going to ask if you're fascists or communists, most of us, most reasonable people, it would seem to me, like to hear both sides of any argument, politics, uh, sport, whatever it might be, and then would some, be somewhere in the middle, different calibrations. The people who go off one end and off the other, we all know, not, by and large, not, not to trust them. But this is the world that we're living in, where hearts, minds and souls are being won and being cultivated by those who are offering certainties that are not, are not there. So this is important. So... How does the Crusades even fit into all of this? So here starts the history lesson. Um, so in 1095, this is completely has no... Um, co it's entirely coincidental that some of these we'll see in Europe today, for example. Uh, floods, yep, got those. In Britain, we shut down last week. You might have seen uh, famine. Okay, this is, seems familiar too. Meteor showers. There's a sort of growing sense at the, end of 11, at the end of the 11th century that things are going wrong. This is an acute fear across all of Europe uh, there's a sense that, that time is coming to an end. There's more and more bad news coming home. Uh, there are signs in the sky. And how to understand in the Christianic religion, in the Islamic religion as well, in the Judaic faith, uh, the idea that the world does come to an end. And you need to be ready for that time. Uh, this all seems that it's all going wrong. And in 1095, in November, uh, the Pope, who's a man named Urban II, um, goes to uh, central France, uh, the Council of Clermont, and he makes a series of, there he is, saying there are lots of, uh, lots of artists depict him standing in a field. I think I've got a picture of him uh, here standing in a church. We don't know either way. It's supposed to be a field, but we know, we know fields don't carry your voice too far. There are, lot, there, are, there are four different accounts of the speech he gave and multiple different later ones. But uh, the Pope says, the churches in which divine mysteries were celebrated in olden time are now to our sorrow being used as stables for the animals of these people. He means Turks, but he means Muslims. Holy men do not possess these cities. Uh, nay, base and bastard Turks hold sway over our brothers. If you want and hope to be mindful of your souls, either lay down the girdle, give up what you're doing, stop pretending to be a knight, or advance boldly as knights of Christ and rush as quickly as you can to the defense of the Eastern Church. Things have gone catastrophically wrong. 
these signs are interpreted as um, signs from God of both displeasure and of fear. And as, as, as I mentioned, the Pope then tells men to sew a cross in red onto their tunic to, mask what they're, to, mar- to mark what they are doing. Uh, the response was rapturous. Uh, I knew it sounds well written. Uh, up went the Deus Vult, Deus Vult. Those aren't my words, uh, but this, these ones are. The crowd listened intently to hear what the Pope would say next. Let that be a war cry for you in battle, because, when it, because it comes from God. When you mass together to attack the enemy, this cry sent by God will be the cry of all. God wills it. God wills it. Please talk to my publishers, because it's not available in Norwegian. Um, but I wrote a book on the First Crusade, you see. It's not available in Norwegian, is it? Not yet, okay, not yet. <laughs> uh, and the, the response to the Pope's urging, both at Clermont, he then goes on a, uh, a sort of round-robin tour uh, to see important, rich uh, princes and barons and urges them to lay down their weapons. And when I wrote this, uh, this book, uh, there it is in English, uh, I think, it, I assumed that uh, what had happened was that there was a, there was a sudden. I shouldn't. It's a bit too selfish to do that. Uh, I assumed that what had happened was that Jerusalem, the holy city where Jesus Christ lived and was crucified and rose from the dead, that had fallen to the Muslims. Uh, I was. A, I'm a medieval scholar amongst other things, and um, it comes as a bit of a surprise to realise that Jerusalem, which is all those things. Uh, but Jerusalem falls to uh, the Muslim armies, the Arab armies as they are at this time, in the year 636, which, don't have to work it on your fingers, it's about 450 years before the First Crusade. So many of my colleagues who work on Western Europe, it's just an assumption that the Crusade is something that the Pope tells men to move, and they do. But the Pope has, well, to be fair, he has tried to move men before in the past, but has never been able to do so, and certainly not in the scale that sees the largest movement of a single body of men in European history to that point, by a huge factor. The Roman army is large at its, at its optimum size. Some legions were, were substantial, numbering in their thousands, in some cases tens of thousands, but eventually somewhere between 80 and 100,000. What, what would you put on the First Crusade? Not quite sure. That's the correct answer. Uh, somewhere, my, my colleagues argue somewhere between 80, maybe even as many as 100,000 men start to head for Jerusalem to recover it. And that asks all sorts of questions. Uh, not just why is the Pope not asked for this had to happen before, but, but why do men respond if this is not exactly, as it's called today, breaking news? Um, but also, uh, why has it never happened before? Why have these knights who want to serve God and are so ready to kneel down and to make the, the financial cost of going, uh, the, the dangers when you travel across. We all know travel is very dangerous. You get, well, today, pickpocketed, but you do get stabbed, killed, murdered, and so on, uh, to fight your way through to another part. So well, pe- people have been traveling on, on, as pilgrims to Jerusalem many times uh, before this date. Um, but it asks the question, why, is, why has there been no attempt by the Christians to recover Jerusalem before this? And it's a very odd question to ask because... Uh, Given the importance of the Holy Land, Christians were very happy for hundreds of years to leave this out of their hands. There was a patriarch, the five most important places in the Christian church when it was established were um, Antioch, the first seat where St. Peter uh, was based, a bishop of Antioch, uh, Rome and Constantinople, uh, Alexandria, which is just here in northern Egypt, and Jerusalem. And the, the church continues, a very subdued uh, way, but continues to, to, to exist there for centuries afterwards. But that crusade, that sudden motivation for men to behave in this way, to, to, to pick up arms, leave their families behind, leave their estates unguarded, unproductive, and to go over long distance, ex- deserves an explanation in the same way that these young men today who want to serve their God and to murder other people in the name of service to God and to leave their homes in Luton or, I dare say, in Oslo and go and join in Raqqa and ISIS to act in the way that they think is the most appropriate, uh, there's a natural parallel to ask, why is that happening? Uh, And one of the reasons is that this giant interconnected world uh, of uh, united by uh, by the uh, the Arab conquest after the death of of Muhammad uh, creates a interconnected world that links uh, the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal with North Africa, the richest parts of Roman, the Roman Empire, right the way through to 
Afghanistan. And over the next three or four hundred years before the Crusades, this is the world that periodically fractures. There's political dispute. There's always competition for influence, you know, money, politics, power, and so on. There are decisive breaches. There are swings between how some Sunnis see their descent and their way that they should construct the world, how some Shia, particularly in Fatimid Egypt from the 900s onwards, or 850s onwards, uh, and how these minorities retreat, are treated, and how other non-Muslim minorities, whether Shia or Sunni, but, but Zoroastrians, Christians, Jews, and others. And this world that connects together is one that, on the eve of the crusade, starts to have a seismic uh, breakdown. Now, you cannot understand the crusades from the perspective of the West, from Europe. We spend 99% of our time in the academic world and in the, in the Crusades working on sources written in what's today um, Europe, but above all in Latin. But I'm a Byzantine specialist. I worked originally on Russia, on the Byzantine world, and um, there are sources written in Constantinople, this eastern part of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire that is not mentioned to anybody at school. Um, There's a different story. But there are sources and accounts written in, in Constantinople, lots of them in Greek, that people who work, typically work on the Latin world or this European world don't speak. There are lots of sources in, in Arabic being produced both um, in Damascus, Baghdad, but then there are sources in what are now the Caucasus, oh, they've always been the Caucasus, in, in the Caucasian languages like Syriac and Armenian, also large numbers of documents in Hebrew that allow not just to uh, build up that picture of what's going on um, uh, before the Crusades, but totally invert it. Because what they show you is that the key part of the story of the Crusade is not um, what's going on with the Pope, who's a weak and ineffective and in a very um, exposed position, but in Constantinople, the great city of, of, of Europe, actually, uh, by the, on, on the eve of the Crusades in the year 1090, 1100, um, Constantinople has a population probably of three or 400,000 people, places like Paris, 20,000, Bologna, 20,000, Rome, 20, maybe 25,000, uh, Stockholm, nothing. Um, Oslo, I don't think, you know, small. Um, Oxford, you know, even smaller, if it makes you feel better. Um, power and so on, authority was all here. And what happens at the, on the eve of the crusade is there is a breakdown between uh, the Fatimid-controlled Egypt, the Shia world here, and the Sunni world di directed and controlled from Baghdad, which isn't on my map, but around about here. And the breakdown point is over Jerusalem, which is a city of profound importance for Islam, for Judaism, and for Christianity. Conditions and the exchange of the city between these two warring factions reaches a breakdown point, and at the same time, on the eve of the crusade, in the, in the three years before this call to arms from the Pope comes, uh, Turks swarm into um, Asia Minor, this wonderful city of Constantinople, the Cathedral of Hagia Sophia, the Byzantine Empire at its peak. We, we don't think about that because uh, Rome ends when, when Russell Crowe dies in Gladiator. Um, here we are. Oh, yes. But Constantinopleism is a magnet for all European leaders. So here, Harold Hordrader from, um, from the Shetlands, uh, even here, uh, this magnificent tapestry uh, in, uh, in, in Oslo showing that, that we, this was a man, your King Harold, came to serve in Constantinople. He went to serve the Byzantine emperor. He learned how to fight. He learned how, to be a, uh, he learned how leadership worked. When he came back, he reminted all the Norwegian coins to look like Byzantine coins and Byzantine silver, because this was the magnet that didn't just attract Europe, it was the crossroads linking the Islamic world, Christianity, uh, all kinds of minorities across the steppes, early Russia, and so on. And then the most poignant image I saw today was with this one, uh, the Battle of Stamford Bridge, for two reasons. First, if Hordrada had won at Stamford Bridge, first, we'd have become a Norwegian state, and there would be no need for Brexit. We'd be in a customs union. <laughs> Uh, second, I'd have been raising my glass after, I'd be speaking Norwegian to you, uh, but I'd be raising my glass saying what a fantastic Olympic Games we just had. Uh, but, uh, but, but this emperor, the Byzantine emperor, uh, and the, works written, the work written by his daughter, profoundly important that it's a work, it's the first narrative history written by a woman. As you know, women get written out of history, even though they're profound. The first novel in, in any language written by a woman in Japan, 
First narrative history written by a woman, also very interesting. But the Turks uh, on the, in the 1090s pushed through to the gates of Constantinople and the news that the great empire in the east is under attack and on the point of dying uh, is what resonates. That's what makes men respond to, um, to Pope Urban II. Uh, you have uh, Jerusalem used more or less as bait, that's rather cynical, but politics always involves a degree of cynicism where you need to match a reward with an expectation. And we have these kinds of reports that start to explain how well it's being told about suffering and injury in Jerusalem, Antioch and other cities of the East. These kinds of reports are being circulated, certainly pumped out of Constantinople to try to generate the military needs, military aid that's required, but also because they're true. And we find those explained in these sources written in these different languages that uh, most of us don't spend any time looking at. Partly because with crusade history, the bit that people want is that knight on a horse. They want that white horse and that brave man who uh, disappears off the side of a cliff or dies on his way home to his wife or um, has his arm chopped off but still carries on going, like Radolf of Caen tells us about the first man over into the walls of Jerusalem uh, in 1099 when the Crusaders finally get there, uh, has his arm hacked off and still keeps on, keeps on going. This is all you can find in this wonderful medieval Greek text, very complicated, uh, also available in translation now. Uh, these Crusaders who come across into Constantinople then uh, marched on Antioch. They captured Nicaea first, where the, where the articles of, of our Christian faith are dictated in 325 under the supervision of Constantine. It's still called the Nicene Creed, uh, the great city of Antioch. And eventually in 1099, they reach Jerusalem. Here's a depiction of Antioch. The walls never look quite like that, but they are a sign of how impregnable the city was. You know, these were cities of antiquity that were enormous. They were fortified. They were almost impossible to get into. In Antioch, it was almost worse. The Crusaders somehow managed to get in. It's a miracle. It's a great story. Uh, it's in my first Crusade book and lots of other books too. Uh, but they then get trapped inside. And there's almost nothing worse than capturing a city that is on its knees and has exhausted all of its water, all of its food, and then being um, locked in by an army that comes to destroy them. The Crusaders somehow find a way out of this through extraordinary bravery, through extraordinary commitment, and in fact justifying why their help was needed in the first place. Uh, the the knight on horseback is um, you know it's like a it's like a it's like a tank against uh, against uh, the kinds of enemies they were fighting against, uh, and then eventually the conquest of Jerusalem in 1099 that restores this holy city to Christian hands for the first time since since the seventh century, and that sets the crusade up at that point from 1099, almost a thousand years ago, as the defining moment of the Middle Ages, the defining moment of the papacy, uh, the defining moment of the medieval knighthood, the defining moment of what we mean to be uh, European and of what success looks like. To be able to beat the odds like that is something still that appeals to us. To put uh, your faith above your own personal needs appeals to us. Uh, to somehow manage to capture and, uh, and become heroes uh, is something that appeals to us. And these men who succeed... Uh, become more or less the equivalent of, you're too young, I'm too old, I'm afraid, to know who Justin Bieber is. But, you know, you're, they became like the David Bowies uh, or the Lou Reeds or whoever you want to pick. They became, they became proper celebrities in Europe. Their names were, got worked into song. Uh, there are people who start to write about them in, in narrative literature. Uh, Bermond, who's my personal bête noire, one of the Normans who fights his way uh, through to Antioch, then refuses to move to Jerusalem because he wants to keep Antioch for himself. Uh, he, when he eventually does come back to Europe, he has the crème de la crème of the posh European girls pushed in front of him to choose from, and he eventually chooses to marry the daughter of the King of France. These are the kind of, they're the poster boys of the Middle Ages because they are used by the church to show that you can't just serve your Lord, you should serve the Lord, right? You can't just look after your castles and your land and be selfish, you need to have a higher purpose too. And all things come flow from this. The Templars that are so appealing to the lunatic right-wing fringe, uh, the ideas about um, crusading that, that catch on and on and on and on, and, and eventually the news reaches here Scandinavia too. So here, Eric Togarthu, Vasilis Danias. This is the tomb of uh, the Eric the Good, King of Denmark, who went to go and see for himself what was going on and then didn't make it back. He's now buried on Paphos uh, in Crete. 
Jeroen Sigurd here, again by Gunter Menter, uh, here arriving in Constantinople. He came back through Constantinople and uh, he left all of his ships there, including the detachable um, uh, prows of the dragon ships. And there's a fantastic display again at the National Museum, which I went to today, of diplomatic gifts, things that have been given to the city of Norway. You know, big Thai long, I don't know what they call longboats, uh, uh, some some stuffed teddy bears, uh, some Chinese porcelain. You know, when you when you visit important people, you give them gifts, and um, and giving giving things that are really expensive and incredibly unpractical is a fantastic idea because. Because they, of course, are the ones that have to, you, know, you have to build a whole museum for them, a whole new wing. Because, and so I always wanted to know what happened to these prowls of these dragon ships. You know, what do you do with that if you're the emperor in Constantinople and you've got you know, silks and gold and jewels and so on? But anyway, he found a use for them. Uh, but Sigurd goes there and then uh, comes back to Norway and eventually dies and is buried in, in what, what, what was St. Halvard's Cathedral, whatever we are, maybe three or 400 meters away from from here. So this crusade, it makes the, the, those who fight to Jerusalem, it makes them famous, it makes those who follow them feel that, that they're not being proper rulers, not being proper aristocrats, not being noble, unless they too go and visit these holy places. And there's a long tradition of pilgrimage before the crusades that then accelerates. Uh, the crusade states, having captured Jerusalem in 1099, start to um, argue about who should control which territories. I mentioned Bermond, he has a principality here, uh, county of Tripoli and so on, and how they, how they manage to um, supply themselves, how they manage to function. Um, and I suppose you know, it's, it's not unreasonable to think that the first challenge is that what power looks like if you are a, from central France, your big castle and your rich fields where it rains a lot and you can grow things and you can order your peasants around. It's a different story living in a city where it's hot. It's a different story, above all, not just the geography, the political structures you need to think about. How do we actually, do we have to vote on things? Who should be king? What kind of power should they have? And, and why do they have power over other, power, other states and so on? The biggest challenge, of course, is that having um, got to Jerusalem and butchered the population that was living there. We have uh, terrible accounts. The Crusaders did terrible things as they crossed Europe. They massacred Jews everywhere they went as they came across uh, through Germany. What one strand of the Crusaders did, I should say. Maybe they weren't all quite as bad as each other, but Jewish populations in Cologne, in Regensburg, were absolutely smashed. Same thing happened to Jews in Jerusalem. We have lots of letters in Hebrew of how quickly people had to run away from their homes. And they were the lucky ones. Uh, the Muslims living in um, in, in Jerusalem, we have accounts which say the Crusaders went door to door, and by the end, the rivers, well, the, the streets were so filled with blood that everybody's ankles turned red. And there's always some poetic license in these things, presumably, but the scale of devastation uh, was clearly very, very dramatic. And uh, the, the, the challenge is that having captured Jerusalem, you know, how do you feed yourself? How do you? How do you? It's one thing being on a horse and looking great with a with a with a spear and a sword. Uh, or lance and a sword, but what do you eat? And it's, you know, if you've just murdered everybody, first, uh, people aren't growing things in the field. You don't know how, what's being planted, how and where, but it's, I suppose, fair enough to think that if you've killed someone's brother, father, whatever, that their relatives might not be so keen to supply you. So one of the challenges the Crusaders have uh, going forwards is how do they establish their hinterland? How do they work out um, who to deal with and how? And of course, not surprisingly, the Crusaders have to learn to become quite tolerant, ironically. They have to learn how to negotiate and deal with the Muslims around them, who are their neighbors. And this is the similar challenge to we have, for example, for Israel in the same part of the world today. How do you cope if everybody around you is sworn to your destruction? And of course, the irony is for the first 30 years, uh, they don't get paid much attention. Partly because you have uh, the Fatimids here in Fustat and what's now Cairo on the Nile worrying about their own problems. And then uh, in Baghdad, likewise, of this great Seljuk Empire that stretches, well, from the Middle East right the way through Persia and so on uh, into Central Asia. There are other fish to fry. And um, having somebody else being in control of this disputed territory can be quite useful. So in the first, and that, and that annoys lots of people. We have a Arab, wonderful Arab source called Imam Kalanisi who writes and says, uh, who go, well, he, he says that a judge goes to see the caliph, the ruler in Baghdad and says, it's disgraceful. How, how can you possibly allow 
these Christians to be taking control of this, of Jerusalem, the holy city, and all you're doing is sitting here and uh, pretending nothing's happening. And the truth is, it just doesn't matter that much to start with. That starts to change by the um, 1130s. New waves of crusaders start to come out, partly because Damascus is, as, as today, strategically hugely important. Without control of Damascus and Aleppo, there's always going to be compromise over these cities in the, in the so-called Holy Land. And uh, the problem is, it turns out, the crusades don't tend to go very well. Uh, so these guys, they come across into, uh, into the Middle East and they, they potter around for a bit, they spend a bit of money, but they don't really achieve too much. And then they go home. Um, and it's quite hard, I suppose, uh, I suppose a son following in a father's footsteps. You know, if your father played football for Norway, it's quite hard to be, you know, to do so well as he did. Uh, I suppose it's how, how do you emulate those first crusaders who had the, all the glory? You know, do you need to capture another city? Why should you go? You know, if, if there are Christians living there already and they need a bit of help, then you know, surely you can send them a bit of money or there must be a different way of doing it. And yet that motivation to be seen to be a good leader drives, in this case, Louis VII of France and, Manuel, um, and Conrad of Germany, the German emperor, uh, to head across into the Middle East to, to see what they can do. And the answer is not much. By the 1160s, 1170s, there's a new man in town. And guess what his name is? Luckily, because it's the Saladin lecture, uh, it's Saladin. Uh, Saladin. And he uh, it comes from, um, he's a Kurd, ethnic Kurd, who, who becomes hugely powerful in, uh, Egyptian, in Egypt and the politics of Egypt and starts to expand northwards. And through this process, uh, is obviously extremely smart, not just on the battlefield, but he's a very clever negotiator. He's able to strike deals and to get this is where he gets this kind of reputation, like I said, from William of Tyre. He is able to outflank, he recognizes weakness, he can see that there are ways in which you can cut deals and then come back on them at a later time when it suits you. Eventually leads to a confrontation at the Horns of Hattin in 1187, where the Crusaders pick a spectacularly stupid place to fight a battle too far from water sources. Any schoolboy knight should have learned that. Uh, and at the end of it, he rounds up the Templars and the Hospitallers, who are the sort of special forces. They're the ones who are really totally committed um, knights who, who, who become monks and don't marry and so on. He has them all beheaded, uh, with particular, um, particularly with the case of a one called Reynald of Châtillon, who, um, is a, you know, who's, who I think it's fair to say was kind of asking for it. Uh, but Saladin then comes to Jerusalem. This depiction here of the whole city being on fire uh, is absolutely not the case. What happens in 1187 after Hattin, Saladin does what a sensible general would do, uh, is to say you have a choice, which is we can negotiate to surrender or you can face the consequences. And the citizens of Jerusalem are allowed to leave if they want to. They're offered protection by Saladin. And this is part of the reason why he gets that reputation for nobility, for clemency, for kindness. And uh, if you read my book on the Silk Roads, you'll see that, that empires where, and that, that have this approach that's progressive and inclusive do well. When you chop people's hands off, blow children up at concerts, no one really wants to join your side. So it's not a very clever way of proceeding. But Saladin takes control of Jerusalem in 1187, and here's a process of his, his conquests, and squeezes the Crusades out uh, into just a few handful of places that remain. And at that point, uh, his Saladin, uh, Nicholas Cage in a film about Saladin, looking, he also doesn't understand what's going on and how the Crusaders could have lost. Um, when the Pope hears news uh, of the fall of Jerusalem, he apparently drops down dead of a heart attack. It's, it's catastrophic news for Christianity, for his beliefs, for Christiana, Christianity as a whole. And there is an immediately, here's the, the, the Jerusalem on fire, and there's an immediately response where Richard the Lionheart, whose statue we saw, uh, Frederick Barbarossa, who was either too fat or too stupid, but uh, he tried to cross a, a river in what's now Turkey, wearing his full arm, set of armor, and you can, I think, guess what happened next. Uh, he never made it. Um, and then Philip of France and Richard the Lionheart, they, they, then, uh, they then fought Saladin in the Holy Land. 
and uh, produced huge amounts of lots of poetry written about all this stuff at the time and afterwards about how Saladin sent some iced sherbet when he saw that Richard Lionheart was sweating, sent some over to his tent so he could cool down a little bit. Um, you know, we love this idea that the noble savage who's able to, you know, play fair uh, even in the heat of battle. Uh, the, the, the French and the English king eventually go back home having achieved not very much, a little, few, few strategic gains, but not the recovery of Jerusalem that was promised. Saladin comes out on top. And Saladin's reputation as a, as a result of all of that is more or less squared for life. Here he is with uh, Saddam Hussein, very keen to expropriate. Well, the, the, the expropriation of Saladin, it's hugely important. Here, the so-called Saladin eagle on the national flag of uh, the Egyptian state. Uh, Saladin is, is, is immensely important, not just to us. I think we have justified in the West the reason why Saladin, it's interesting that it's even called the Saladin lecture. You couldn't call it the Muhammad lecture or the Prophet Muhammad lecture or whatever you want to say. Uh, but Saladin is the only other name in town right, that has that resonance. And that's a product of a thousand years of establishing this image of, of, of Saladin as a noble, as a conciliator, as a man who chose clemency when he could have been violent, although you know, he used violence uh, when he, where, as and when he needed to or wanted to. That process of how Saladin was, uh, was reconfigured uh, was, was hugely important. And I suppose from a European perspective, the reason why Saladin was prioritised like this was because, well, um, when you lose your most important city, like Jerusalem, you, you need to lose it to a superstar. Right? You need to lose it to somebody special. You need to lose it to someone who is like you, but better, who is more noble, or in the words of Walter Scott, he's more, um, more pious, he's better behaved, whereas our own side, we're all a little bit rough around the edges. And uh, what's interesting to me is that we now have a different view of, of Saladin. I don't know this is the best bit. Uh, different views of Saladin, where um, the Shia world are starting to see Saladin in a very different way. So Saleh Al-Wadani is writing about Saladin, this is about 20 years ago, uh, now is trying to push the image of Saladin the other way. This is a man who tolerated the Crusaders, oppressed the Muslims. His deviant behavior has been overlooked by military accomplishment, and he criticizes the tolerance, even arrogance, of, um, of Saladin. How dare he deal with the enemies of Islam and the Muslims like this? This is why history is not just interesting, it's also important. Uh, we have here, uh, this is the, the, the Reynaud of Châtillon, how important it is today that the guys who are trying to blow up airplanes on the way to the so-called DHL parcel bomb um, address their package to uh, Reynaud Crack, which is a kind of nickname for Reynaud of Châtillon. Uh, he, he was, okay, he, this is the one who was beheaded, like I mentioned, by Saladin. These kind of, you know, this resonance of what goes through the mind of someone who wants to put, who put this bomb on the plane and thought, I know how I'm going to address it to, like a sort of game. Luckily, it was found. The challenge is with the Crusades is that nothing is ever what we seem, right? Involving God in our decisions is, is the best way to justify violence, is the best way to justify abuses of power. In fact, what happens in the case of Europe is some people do unbelievably well out of the Crusades, right? Uh, most important and most obviously, uh, uh, Venice where uh, the Venetians, they realized very early on that uh, the Holy Land needs to be supplied, those challenges of logistics and supply and food and so on. Uh, places like Genova here and Pisa and Venice start to find themselves very lucrative trading positions within the, um, uh, within the Holy Land ports or the Christian ports of the Holy Land, bringing them goods at, low, uh, at high levels of tax, quite high the taxes in Norway. Different story. It's a good thing for the state because you can build well if you tax efficiently and if you trade more. And Venice isn't just plugging into um, the trade routes of, of the Holy Land, uh, but they then quickly connect into Ale Alexandria, the Genoese and the Italians and the Venetians, all, of, all the city-states build funduks or warehouses along the northern coast of, uh, of Egypt, are very happy to trade with wherever the money is. Right? That's the rule of business. You don't spend too long thinking about morality when there's money involved. It's very hard to let these two things uh, cross over with each other. So in the 12th century, we know from Jerusalem, from a particular list, this is just one of many we could use, these are the kind of goods that are available. This is what's driving that kind of trade. And some of these are produced in the Holy Land itself, but lots of these are connecting into this wide extension of trade routes, 
which uh, are connected to um, North Africa too, and to Alexandria through the Red Sea, but through the Gulf, through Central Asia, uh, ultimately towards South Asia, India, Pakistan, Indus Valley, and China in what are today known as the Silk Roads. The, the kinds of products that are hugely demanded in a Europe that is galvanized by rising levels of social mobility, by rising levels of aspiration, ambition, rising levels above all of wealth. These kinds of goods are where it's at. This is, the, this is how you got rich in those days. And Venice and cities that could get their hooks into it served well. Eventually, in 1204, the Venetians are so keen to take control of all of this trade that they end up sacking the city of Constantinople itself, um, which is, of course, as I mentioned, the big Christian city. So what had started the Crusades with 1019, 1095, the pressure on Constantinople, eventually this one is called the Fourth Crusade, the Venetians end up taking control of the city itself and not going on to Jerusalem. And then they take some of the treasures of, of Constantinople that you see today. These, uh, the real ones are in the museum, but the horses from the Hippodrome, I showed you quickly a picture of, the four tetrarchs that they're called, and these kind of amazing, um, uh, amazing church objects, ecclesiastical objects. And uh, on the Fifth Crusade, eventually Venice takes control again or plays a role, and the target no longer becomes Jerusalem. The target becomes uh, the, 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 the Nile Delta, its um, crops, its wealth of crops, and also its physical location, because getting, getting goods in this direction are, are much harder than through, uh, through the Red Sea. So the Crusades start as being something to defend Constantinople, and they end up destroying it. It starts to be about holding on to Jerusalem, and it turns into something about money and conquest. Uh, it starts about being about devotion and piety, and it turns into a kind of badge of honor that you have to show that you've been somewhere, and then you, you go back home because you're either a bit bored or you run out of cash or you think you can't do anything, which is what happens on the Second Crusade with Louis VII of France and Conrad of Germany, or on the Third Crusade where Philip and Richard the Lionheart spend most of their time sulking in their tent and having sherbet before they head back, head back home. And so in today's world, we see these kinds of things, and to blow this up, this is American troops on the ground in... Um, in Afghanistan, this is, this is incredibly serious, very important. Uh, the, the prevalence and the, um, the drive to have this kind of language. And I suppose um, this surprises me for lots of reasons. First, because it's a long time ago. But the reason that surprises me most is that the Crusades, taken as a whole, were a total disaster. And I don't mean because of the, you know, the mixed messages or the violence or money. It's because they didn't work. You know, Jerusalem fell in 1187, and that was it. Uh, the British eventually went back into Jerusalem in 1917, but for the next 800 years, no one did anything about it. The Crusades is the single military expedition or group of expeditions that anyone with a brain and an education would want to avoid. Because you have one initial success in 1099, the capture of Jerusalem, and then, okay, you hold it for 78, 70, 87 years, 88 years, but then it doesn't work. All that invocation of God, all of that money, all of that hope, all of that attempts to show that you're serving God, all the attempts to show that you are being more than you're the next night, turn out to be a fruitless task. And perhaps there's no coincidence that the Crusades start to become, excited, become really exciting again in the 1800s when most countries in Europe start to build themselves empires. And that story of colonialism, what does it mean to have a group of Englishmen living in India? Um, what does it mean to, to be, if you're Belgian and you have a huge provinces in, in Africa? What does it mean to be, if you're Spanish and provinces in South America and so on? That elision, that similarity of serving your king and serving God, join very closely together once again. So the Crusades become at the time of Walter Scott and afterwards, a sort of toolkit to say, okay, it's not Jerusalem, but it's the same sort of story, that you are doing something good, you're civilizing, you're bringing other, like, other parts of the world into our light. All these kinds of ideas that we have in the West that seem to me very dangerous. But as well as the, the, the Crusaders, I mean, as well as the modern world having these slightly crazy ideas about the Crusades, because, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if any of you work on probability theory or mathematics, he hasn't got a chance, this guy. Well, first, he's on foot, right, which is unbelievably stupid because he really hasn't got a chance. Second, he's alone, also very stupid. But third, these knights, they didn't manage to hold on. They didn't manage to hold on. And in the end, we started to reframe how we think about the world, even geographically. In England, there's a very famous hymn called Jerusalem. You'll sometimes hear it on those very, very rare occasions where we're winning a football match. 
And the, and the crowd will start to sing it. And it says, in these, in, in, we shall build a new Jerusalem in these green and pleasant lands. You know, much better, frankly, to have Jerusalem in Somerset or somewhere, you know, a bit closer to home than all the way over there where people fight a lot. It's very hot. No one really likes us very much. And we get things wrong. And so these, this idea about interventions in other states, it's, it's not surprising that US forces will look for parallels and to see that the Crusades is a point where you had to serve king and God. And you read these accounts of that. I mean, the, the history is a fantastically exciting subject right now, not just because of the changing world, but because of different methods. I spent a long time uh, looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. We know a lot now about servicemen, the kind of pressure you're under when you're in the field and you're under attack, or when you don't know whether, who's a civilian and who's a potential enemy. When your battalion members are killed in front of you or don't come back from patrol and they're not killed in front of you. Those kind of traumas that you go through, we can now understand much better the kinds of experiences that these men must have been going through a thousand years ago and the similar kinds of conditions. A long way from home, uh, no women, by the way, anywhere near them, uh, and the kind of processes of how do you try to uh, intervene where you arrive with these ideas. The Crusaders arrive with ideas about Islam and then they learn how to accommodate. They learn that you have to uh, respect other people's views, otherwise you can't trade with them. And you find Arab sources writing about this, like Ibn Jubair, who says that we have a very easy way of getting on with these guys who live here. Our nightmare is when new people arrive, because they don't understand the rules of the game. They don't understand that they need to respect us and we will respect them in return. And in fact, when we sit and we talk about our faith and we talk about the Quran, we talk about Judaism, talk about Christianity, it's not, it's not quite so chatty as that, by the way. But you know, there is a way in which we can find common ground. And you know, we can forget in today's world that there are, we're all descended through the same process. We've taken very different perspectives, very different faiths after a certain point. But you know, all of us have Adam and Eve, if you're Muslim, Christian, or Jewish. All of us have Abraham. All of us have Isaac. All of us have the ideas about pilgrimage, about the apocalypse, about the end of time, about the reason to be good, about drawing closer to God. We have hugely important differences in articles of faith between us that separate us. But there is more in common that we could maybe work through. And that's very hard in this kind of world, where in Charlottesville last year, you find Des Vult, I showed you earlier, uh, the idea that uh, the Crusades should come back. Uh, the alt-right in America, these symbols, these ideas, this kind of language about how the, America, how the United States particularly sees black and white, not only in relation to other parts of the world, but within the United States at all, you know, the Economist writing about the fascination with the Middle Ages. You couldn't, couldn't make it up. And my colleagues and I, um, those of us who are medievalists, you know, it's, it's extraordinary that our phones ring saying, tell us what's going on and why do these people say this from the press or asking us what we think? Uh, because um, no one would think twice to, I mean, if anybody worked on King Sigurd, it's unlikely that one of the newspapers here would ring up and say, tell us why Sigurd is in the news today. But these, this, middle, this Middle Ages and, it, and control of its Middle Ages is part of what defines the modern world around us today. The Crusades, absolutely the heart of it. And in the same way, the crazies who are blowing themselves up, talking about Crusades, talking about capturing Rome, talking about uh, uh, the, you know, how, how glor glorious it is to murder small girls at a concert, forget that at the end of the Crusades, after this intervention, we see the highest peak of what becomes the Ottoman world as a direct result of this world that's connected together by Saladin. He doesn't achieve a great deal after the capture of Jerusalem, but here in yellow, an image of the Ottoman world at its maximum extent, and what, this must be 1683, reaching the gates of Vienna. The Crusades were hugely important for convincing an Islamic world to unite hugely important in creating a common enemy so that the Shia, and there are minorities all over here, and in fact, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, it's important to get the words right, there are so many different factions within Shia Islam, within Sunni Islam, but you see this bonding where the cause is greater for when all are aligned together, and that's an ironic byproduct of the Crusades. It lays the platform for unification. It allows a platform for heavy-handed intervention to turn into something that creates this sort of superpower that has, we, we, again, like the, we think of the Byzantines as a, in a negative way. We think of the Ottomans as a sort of poor, feeble, weak entity. But this world, more or less from about 1300 until maybe not as late as the First World War, but maybe till 1830, 1840, maybe even 1878, is one that controls all, this, um, all these parts of the world in a way that today you hear people like Erdogan saying maybe the Ottomans didn't do such a bad job. 
and when you see what latest interventions have done in Iraq and in Syria, in Egypt and in Libya, different scales and different reasons and so on, but you see that same process that what we have done through these interventions is to create a single common enemy. And uh, unfortunately, uh, because we don't have a nuanced way of dealing with these parts of the world, that process seems to me to be getting worse than it's getting better. Now, the only way we can fix that is through education. Uh, the only way we can fix that is by looking not just at our glorious nights, but looking at different sources and different languages and different ways. Uh, and, but then above all, it works through um, events like this. So I know that you wouldn't be here if you weren't uh, supporters of Literatur Huset. I said beforehand, I asked who should I thank apart from Literatur Huset and all of you for coming, and I was told I didn't have to thank the Norwegian Foreign Ministry anymore because they no longer provide any of the budget uh, for this institution. And that in, it, that in itself seems to me uh, not just um, uh, a shame, that seems to me irresponsible. These Saladin Dagen are important, and they're important for a reason. But the main thing I'd like to say is um, thank you for inviting me here and thank you for listening so patiently to my talk. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek. <laughs>